Welcome to the podcast of Eden Worship Center. We believe that God has perfectly revealed himself through scripture alone, and that salvation comes by grace alone, from faith alone in Christ alone, and that everything is for the glory of God alone. So as we study God's unchanging, inerrant word together, ask God to open your eyes, to open your eyes to see yourself and your own sin clearly. Open your eyes to see Jesus clearly, and pray that God would give you the grace to repent, to turn from your sin, and the faith to trust in Christ alone for your salvation. If you'd like more information, go to our website at edenworshipcenter.co. Now Lot went up out of Zoar and lived in the hills with his two daughters, for he was afraid to live in Zoar. So he lived in a cave with his two daughters. And the firstborn said to the younger, Our father is old, and there is not a man on earth to come into us after the manner of all the earth. Come, let us make our father drink wine, and we will, lie, we will lie with him, that we may preserve offspring from our father. So they made their father drink wine that night, and the firstborn went in and lay with her father. He did not know when she lay down or when she arose. The next day the firstborn said to the younger, Behold, I lay last night with my father. Let us make him drink wine tonight also. Then you go in and lie with him, that we may preserve offspring from our father. So they made their father drink wine that night also. And the younger arose and lay with him, and he did not know when she lay down or when she arose. Thus both the daughters of Lot became pregnant by their father. The firstborn bore a son and called his name Moab. He is the father of the Moabites to this day. The younger also bore a son and called his name Benami. He is the father of the Ammonites to this day. Let's pray. Oh God, this morning we are reminded of your boundless goodness and faithfulness. And we're so thankful to be a part of your body and that one day we will be reunited with you. This morning we just pray that uh, your, your gospel would be put on display and your glory would be put on display through the lives of your people and through the death of your people. We just pray that your truth would be proclaimed and that hearts and eyes and minds would be turned towards you, God. We pray these things in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Maybe seated. I want to say thanks to the worship team for leading this morning. One of the things that we're attempting to do is make space for some of our young people to lead and sing and sort of grow in those gifts and talents God has given them. Danielle leaned over to me uh, in, I think, the middle of singing It Is Well With My Soul, and she says, you may want to tell everybody that Ashton picked these songs out on Tuesday, uh, not in response to uh, the heartache of yesterday. And yet, as we sang together, I was reminded the unshakable and singable truth that God's people have clung to throughout the generations. And then I thought about this passage that we're going to be looking at, and my heart has kept saying, I wish it was something else. I, I wish it was something that we could sort of bend a little better towards um, 
bringing comfort to our hearts in the middle of a tragic situation. And yet, here's here's what we tend to do in the midst of tragedy. In the midst of desperate moments, we make huge mistakes. We turn to other things, we trust in other things, and we actually turn our back on the one true God to trust ourselves for something else. We're going to see that happen twice in the passages we're going to look at today. Beginning with the story of Lot and his daughters, which is why the reminder that I put on our kids' coloring page as the Bible verse for this week on Monday is this, Proverbs 3, verses 5 and 6. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him, and He will make straight your paths. We're going to see two examples of that not lived out. We're going to see it in Lot and his daughters. We're going to see it with Abraham and Sarah. And before we jump into that, I just want to remind us that trusting in the Lord with all of our heart is easy to say when everything is going good and you're sitting in church on a Sunday morning. But it's infinitely, eternally precious to say In your living room on a Saturday morning as friends and family gather to grieve. And through tears and hugs, you say, we're going to trust in the Lord with all of our heart and lean not on our own understanding. And I got to see the family do that yesterday. I would just commend them. Continue trusting in the Lord. When we look at this passage of Lot and his daughters. It's a really strange story. It actually reinforces something, and that's that Scripture is believable. God's Word is true. Now, that's not the main focus of what we're talking about this morning, but if you're going to build a religion, if you're going to propagate a religion based on mythology and tall tales, or if you're a White House press secretary you're never going to point out your hero's faults. That's true for every administration. It just seemed appropriate with elections coming up. You're not going to point out the hero's faults. You're not going to point out his failures, his abuses, or possible dementia. I threw abuse and dementia just to catch both sides. And yet Scripture doesn't shy away from sharing uh, the frailties and the failings The shortcomings of the saints. John Calvin, the great reformer, in looking at this passage in particular, Genesis 19 and Genesis 20, called this, quote, a remarkable instance both of the infirmity of men and the grace of God. That's what we see in these two passages. uh, What we read with Lot and what we're going to read with Abraham and Sarah. The frailty of man. And the grace of God. Uh, just as a, a review for those of you who maybe haven't been with us, we, we teach verse by verse through books of the Bible. And we're, we're obviously in the middle of the book of Genesis. And Lot is Abraham's nephew. Most, most people are familiar with Abraham. They've heard of him. 
So right from the beginning, when we discover Abraham back in Genesis chapter 12, we're told that he takes his nephew with him, his nephew Lot. All the way, he grew up in a town called Ur, which was in the land that belonged to the Chaldeans. And they make this long trek around the Middle East up to Haran, and then eventually down into the Promised Land. By the time that we get there, God has so blessed them, he has so multiplied them, that in Genesis 13, we're told that Abraham and his nephew Lot have to separate And here's just a quote from one of those verses. For their possessions were so great that they could not dwell together. They they didn't measure wealth like we do today with how much money you have in the bank or what your stock portfolio looks like. It was, how big is your industry? How, How big are your flocks and your herds? So in getting a handle on that, think of a, a super farm in our day. It, in fact, if you know farmers at all, you know they don't measure wealth based on how much money they have in the bank. Because at certain times of the year, it's zero or less than zero. And yet, some of these super farms just have uh, gigantic herds and several hundred people working for them. We're not told how many people Lot had working with him or for him, but it's comparable to where it can't coexist with what Abraham has. So they separate, and Lot goes and settles. They're nomadic. They're living in tents. And he settles in this valley near a town called Sodom. And while he's there, these kings come in, different kings form a coalition, and they attack. And Lot and his family, his household, get taken captive. So in chapter 14 of Genesis, Abraham has to go get his nephew has to go save him. Now here's where we don't know how big Lot's household was, but when Abraham has to rally his troops, Genesis 14, verse 14 says, Abraham heard that his kinsmen had been taken, and he led forth his trained men, born in his house, 318 of them, and they went in pursuit. Now I don't know how your business is doing, but I'm guessing you don't have 318 trained servants that were born into your house. Uh, This is a big operation. Right, so what Lot has, what I want you to see this morning, uh, God has blessed Abraham and it has splashed down all over Lot. Yeah, Lot has been blessed, he has been multiplied. And yet God's covenant was not with Lot, God's covenant was with Abraham. It was through Abraham that God said, I'm going to choose you. Out of all the families of the earth, I'm going to choose you. Out of you, I'm going to make a great nation. But because Lot is his nephew, because he's in his household, he's been included in that blessing. Which means, as he's living near Sodom, when God decides he's going to destroy Sodom, because of their wickedness, as a, as a warning for all wickedness that was to come, because Lot lives there, God goes and tells Abraham first. And from Abraham, these two angels go out to Sodom. To rescue Lot, to rescue his family. And if you remember from a couple weeks ago, they literally have to drag him out because he lingered, he hesitated. But they drag out Lot, his wife, his two daughters, but not his sons-in-law. Lot warns them, up, let us go, and they think he's joking. There's been nothing of a faith in God that's been passed on to them. They don't see it at all, and therefore they remain and perish in the judgment. They're gone. All of his business, all the blessing that God had brought, uh, flocks and herds and servants are gone. Everything that he had is gone. And he escapes from town. 
And his wife looks back, longing for what they have lost, and now she is gone. And the angels say to Lot, run. Run for the hills. Escape for your life. And Lot responds, oh no, my Lord. We're not told what he means by oh no, my Lord, in chapter 19. Is it the people of the hills are too dangerous? Is it the trip is too long? I'm not going to make it in time. I'll be, I'll be caught up in whatever is coming. But he makes a bargain. He says, how about Zoar? There's a little town. It's still in the valley. But it's small. It's close. It's closer than the, the mountains are to run to. How about if I go there? It's small. How bad can it be? Even today, non-Christians know that Sodom and Gomorrah is not a picture of something good. It's not, not healthy. <clears throat> and here's Lot's argument. Yeah, but Zoar is just a little town. Yeah, I, I know it's in the same area. I, I know the, the same things are going on there, and therefore God is going to destroy it, along with all the other little towns that are in this valley. But how bad can it be? And so we find ourselves in the passage for today, Genesis chapter 19, verse 30. And Lot went up out of Zoar, the place where he begged to go and lived in the hills where the angels told him to go with his two daughters. Catch this, because he was afraid to live in Zoar. We don't know what this town had to offer. We don't know what was going on there, but we know once he got there, Lot said, there's no way I can live here. He was afraid to live in Zoar. And so he lived in a cave with his two daughters. And those are sobering words. For a man who'd been blessed and rich with so much, now all that he has are two daughters living in a cave. In both of these historical accounts, this one and the one we're going to read in just a second, of Abraham and Sarah, I want us to be thinking, I want us to be feeling what they're feeling, what they're thinking in this moment. This moment of desperation, we stand to lose everything. It may sound wrong, it may sound crazy, but if we don't act right now, it's all going to be gone. I mentioned that the elections for our nation are going on this Tuesday, and that abortion has become the central issue going on in so many of those elections going on in districts all over our nation. Father Frank Provone, who is... Uh, the founder and leader of Priests for Life, has one of my favorite quotes in reference to abortion that I've ever heard. He says, women don't get abortion because they have a freedom of choice, but because they feel like they have no freedom and have no choice. That's the desperate situation that Lot's two daughters find themselves in right here. Their betrothed husbands are gone. Their, their future, their hope, uh, their lineage as a family is gone. And suddenly they are in a panic. What shall we do? And they are willing to sin or do anything that they have to to hold on. And so they do the unimaginable to their father. Uh, Charles Spurgeon, in looking at this passage, famously uh, preached a sermon, which if you were in adult Sunday school last week, I sent to Chuck that he would appreciate it because he talked about how they didn't necessarily walk through context like we do. He took Lot's words, it's a little one, isn't it? And he had a sermon called Little Sins. 
how we make excuses for the little things in our life. But I, I want to read you a quote from it. This is from 1859. How much more true is it of us today? Many souls, I doubt not, have been caught in this trap. And being snared they, thereby, they have been destroyed. They have ventured into sin where they thought the stream was shallow and fatally deceived by its depth have been swept away by the strength of the current to that cataract which is the ruin of such vast multitudes of the souls of men. Little excuses, little sins, little things that we feel like we must do. And they have led to us being swept away. Lot had everything and now it is all gone. Just these two daughters living in a cave. And so in their desperation, they say, we have lost everything. And here's their desire. It actually gives us what they're thinking and what they're feeling. We must preserve offspring for our family. Our family is gone. Our family is done if we don't preserve offspring. It's interesting. What they're looking for is a lasting legacy for their family. And that's not what they get. At least not in any positive sense. We just read last week in John chapter 8 is Jesus is talking with the Pharisees and they say, we are the children of Abraham. Among God's people, we're the children of Abraham and yet Lot is gone. The only descendants of, Abraham, of Lot are now the Moabites who are constantly a thorn in the flesh of God's people. The Ammonites, who God again and again says he is going to destroy because they are a thorn in the flesh of God's people. In a desire to perpetuate children and a heritage, they actually became a pain to the children of God. One of the things I had to remind myself multiple times in studying for this this week is we're talking about righteous lot. Here's how we know that. 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 7. You've heard this for like three or four weeks in a row. And it bears repeating because I just don't see it in the story. I don't see it in him. I don't see it in his actions. I don't see it in his family. We're told in 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 7, that his soul was tormented by the evil that was around him. But remember, how is Lot in the covenant family of God? How is he declared righteous? It's because of God's covenant towards Abraham that extended towards Lot. That's why in Genesis 19, verse 29, it says, So it was when God destroyed the cities of the valley, God remembered Abraham and sent out Lot. Not God remembered Lot. This was for the sake of Abraham in the midst of the overthrow that he overthrew the cities in which Lot had lived. Oh, but friends, here is a sobering thought. Lot failed to pass this on to his children and the next generation. His wife is gone, and his daughters are shockingly depraved, though they were saved in this moment. For Lot, the blessing of Abraham was salvation and deliverance. For his daughters, it was only the immediate benefit of a temporary deliverance. Oh, moms and dads and grandmas and grandpas, this should cause a sober reality to sweep over our souls. Let us diligently 
pass on the faith to the next generation. Far too many young people have grown up in our church only to reject God's salvation. Even though for a time they lived under the benefit of a Christian covenant family only to walk away later under pressure. Pressure of life or pressure of trauma or desperateness or even just academic and philosophical pressure where they head off to college and suddenly they're made to feel foolish if they acknowledge any kind of Christian faith. And out of self-preservation, out of desperate measures, they're willing to do anything to hold on. One of my favorite quotes is, sin makes you stupid. Desperation will make us do desperate things. I was reminded of a story of a guy named Aaron Lee Ralston, who back in 2003 was doing a crazy sort of expedition climb in Blue John Canyon in southeast Utah. And in, in his climbing, all by himself, he knocks a boulder loose and it pins his arm to the side of the canyon wall. Catch this. Five days later... He finally frees, thanks to a rock and a pocket knife, he frees his arm from his body. Now, I'm not going to describe it more because Jonas is in the room, right? Uh, (laughs) He didn't free it from the rock. He freed it from his body. And it's not over yet. At that point, he has to make his way out of the canyon. He had to rappel down a 60-foot drop with one arm. And then Mike... uh, hike seven miles to safety. Stuck in a cave for five days. What am I going to do? Desperate measures. We find Lot and his daughters also in a cave, also desperate, attempting not to be forgotten. But friends, here's the incredibly ironic part. This is the last time Lot is mentioned in Genesis. He's gone. He's forgotten. It's just these descendants who are going to be a pain in the side of God's people. Oh, when we sin to get what we want, when we sin to hold on to something, listen to Isaiah 30, verse 1. Ah, stubborn children, declares the Lord, who carry out a plan, but not mine, who make an alliance, but not of my spirit, that they may add sin to sin. Ah, but that's Lot. That's his daughters. Our hope lies in Abraham. Amen? Like we're, we've been adopted as children of Abraham. And to Abraham and Sarah, we've been tracking this story. Isaac, the promise is coming soon. In fact, it's almost here. So when we read chapter 20, our hero of the faith, Abraham, is going to get it right. Yeah? No. <laughs> what we're going to see is just like us. Abraham making the same stupid mistake over and over. Look at chapter 20 with me. From there, Abraham journeyed towards the territory of the Negev and lived between Kadesh and Shur. He sojourned in Gerar. And Abraham said of Sarah, his wife, 
She's my sister. We've heard this before, haven't we? When they went to Egypt and he said, say that you're my sister. And Abimelech, king of Gerar, sent and took Sarah. We've seen that before. Verse 3, but God came to Abimelech in a dream by night and said to him, behold, you are a dead man because of the woman whom you have taken, for she is a man's wife. Now Abimelech had not approached her, and so he said, Lord, will you kill an innocent people? Did he not say to me, himself say to me, she's my sister? And she herself said, he's my brother. In the integrity of my heart, in the innocence of my hands, I've done this. And God said to him in a dream, yes, I know that you have done this in the integrity of your heart. And it was I who kept you from sinning against me. Therefore, I did not let you touch her. Now then, return the man's wife, for he is a prophet, so that he will pray for you and you shall live. But if you do not return her, know that you shall surely die and all who are yours. So Abimelech rose early in the morning, like you would, and called all his servants and told them all these things, and the men were very much afraid. Then Abimelech called Abraham and said to him, What have you done to us? And how have I sinned against you that you have brought on me and my kingdom a great sin? You have done to me things that ought not to be done. And Abimelech said to Abraham, What did you see and that you did this thing? Abraham said, I did it because I thought, There's no fear of God at all in this place, and they will kill me because of my wife. Besides, she indeed is my sister, the daughter of my father, though not the daughter of my mother. And she became my wife. When God caused me to wander from my father's house, I said to her, This is the kindness that you must do to me at every place to which we come. Say of me, he's my brother. Then Abimelech took sheep and oxen and male servants and female servants and gave them to Abraham and returned Sarah, his wife, to him. And Abimelech said, Behold, my land is before you. Dwell where it pleases you. To Sarah he said, Behold, I have given your brother, that's an interesting designation that he uses there, I've given your brother a thousand pieces of silver. It is a sign of your innocence in the eyes of all who are with you and before everyone. You are vindicated. Then Abraham prayed to God and God healed Abimelech and he also healed his wife and female slaves so that they bore children. And the Lord had closed all the wombs of the house of Abimelech because of Sarah, Abraham's wife. Although God has promised the land of Canaan, the the promised land to Abraham, to his descendants, the majority of Abraham's life is nomadic. It's described as he sojourned. Man, friends, this sounds like us so much. There are certain TV preachers who are out there who will tell you that you can just step into the promised land right now if you send them the correct amount of money. And I'm going to tell you God has actually called you to sojourn on this earth. To be a stranger and an alien where our, our home is not here. And periodically we are reminded of that. We see it lived out in Abraham's life as he comes to Gerar and immediately makes the same mistake that he made previously. The same mistake that God had bailed him out of when they went to Egypt, which we find at the end of chapter 12 in Genesis. And yet again, we see God being faithful to his covenant. 
When his people are not, God is faithful. He remembers his promise and he guards it. Uh, Genesis chapter 12, verses 2 and 3. I will make you a great nation. Here's the promise. I will bless you. I will make your name great. You will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. And him who dishonors you, I will curse. We saw that with Pharaoh. We've just seen it with King Abimelech. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. And so here, again, in chapter 20, we see what we saw in chapter 12. Abraham acting in fear and faithlessness, thinking only of himself with no regard for his wife at all. This is, this is staggering to think of the hero of the faith, Abraham, willing to trade his wife, Sarah's sexual purity, for his own personal safety. Baby, if I don't give you away, they're going to hurt me. <laughs> Write that in your Valentine's card that's coming up <laughs> in February. Just see how that goes. In Egypt, we don't know what happened. We're not given the explicit thing that we're told here in chapter 20. We don't know how far things got between her and the king of Egypt and Pharaoh. But here things are different, and we should ask ourselves why. Our first inclination, and here's why I actually think uh, that her purity was compromised in Egypt, because God is not in this moment acting to preserve her purity. He's acting to preserve his covenant. Things are very different now than they were then. Let's see if we can dig at that a little bit. Kids who are in the room, let me ask you a question. God made a lot of promises to Abraham. And Abraham and his wife, by the way, are really, really old. Like, think of mom and dad and then go even older. (laughs) Right? We're going to be told in Genesis 17... That God's promised that I'm going I'm to multiply you. I'm going to make you a great nation. I'm going to bless the whole earth. And in chapter 17, he promises the big one. The one that is impossible for a woman that's in her 90s and a guy who's almost 100. So kids, what was the big promise that was coming? Does anybody know? A baby. That's it. Good job. Anybody know what the baby's name was going to be? Jesus. Isaac. Okay, good. But, but Jesus is a great answer, and I love hearing it. Shout it out from our kids. What's the answer? Jesus. All right. God's promise to this incredibly old couple is a baby is coming. It made no sense. It still makes no sense. This was a miracle. But here's what God, God said, Genesis 18, verse 10. The Lord said, I will surely return to you about this time next year. One year from now, and Sarah, your wife, shall have a son. Now, let me help you out, kids. Here's how old they are. We have an actual picture of Abraham and Sarah. This is, this is them right here. Aren't they sweet? It's not really them. <laughs> Just so you know. Next, can you imagine if you met this couple and they're like, next year we're going to have a baby. Like, get the nurse, right? <laughs> we need some help in room 12 over here. Now, now, things are different. The first time where they went to Egypt, and he says, this is my sister, and, and she's taken by Pharaoh, they weren't in that one-year period where God said, I'm going to give you a baby. Now they are within that time frame, and they come 
across King Abimelech. Here's an actual picture of him. Now, if you meet this couple and they say, we're going to have a baby, and you got to decide whether it's Abraham's or The Rock, who you're choosing, right? Everybody on the planet goes, that's not Abraham's boy, that's Abimelech, right? I see him all over that. Now think, if God has said, this is the covenant, this is the promise, Abraham, not only am I choosing you, out of all the families of the earth, I'm choosing you, you're barren, you're childless, I'm going to give you a child, I'm going to make you a nation, and into that nation, I'm going to impress my nature and my character, you are going to be my people, it is suddenly a huge deal who the father of this baby is, are you tracking with me? This is not about God protecting her innocence. Abraham traded that already. This is God protecting his covenant, his people. Oh, friends, this should make us pray different for our children. Those who are in the covenant family of God, oh, God, stand guard. Oh, God, build a legacy of faith in our children and grandchildren. We're not given the time frame that this happens, but it takes about nine months for a baby to grow inside its mother's womb. And if God doesn't intervene, there's going to be all kinds of questions of legitimacy of who this baby belongs to. And so God visits Abimelech, this king, in a dream. And I I wish we had more time this morning. We're not going to take the time to dive into it. But Abimelech responds really, really well to God's intervention. Look with me, chapter 20, starting verse 3. God speaks a really encouraging word. You know, we're like, I just wish God would speak to me. How about this one? Behold, you're a dead man. Because of the woman whom you have taken, she is a man's wife. Now Abimelech had not approached her, so he says, Lord, will you kill an innocent people? Did he not himself say to me, she's my sister, and she herself said, he's my brother in the integrity of my heart. In the innocence of my hands, I've done this. And God said to him in the dream, yes, I know. You did this in the integrity of your heart, and it was I who kept you from sinning against her. Therefore, I did not let you touch her. Oh, I wish we had time to develop a couple things. Number one, he says, I'm doing the best I can, and God said, I'm taking your best, and I'm making it what I wanted out of it. Oh, friends, when we live lives the best that we can to honor and glorify God, we're trusting in the sovereign king who goes beyond what we can possibly do and is working his will over and above our will. I also wish we had time to jump in a little bit more to Abimelech's response, because he seems to know this God. There seems to be an interaction and intimacy with him. And yet when we read of God's judgment, you're a dead man, that can seem a little harsh. I think think we see echoes of this today. Because we, we want to say, I was lied to. I should be off the hook for any of my consequences. I, I went in thinking other things. I, I, was, I was misled, and therefore I'm the victim here. I think God, along with discerning Christians, should say, yes, you're in a terrible spot. You were warned by your own conscience. You were warned by friends. You were warned by God's word. But you did exactly what you wanted to do. Yes, you were lied to, you were mistreated along the way, but you are not the victim here. You rightfully stand, Romans 1 says, under the judgment and wrath of God. 
We know that's true here because God, the holy and righteous judge, has brought a curse upon him. He says, I didn't know. I, I didn't know all the details. I'm, I'm innocent here. And God says, I've already judged you. Literally, your only hope, we, we've said again and again, the Old Testament is pointing us towards Jesus, pointing us towards Jesus, is to have someone else, someone who I have chosen, step in as an intermediate and pray for you that you may be healed. Abraham, uh, imaging Christ for us, who steps in and prays. And yet look at God preserving his covenant and his people. Verse 6, it was I who kept you from sinning against me. I'm the one who didn't let you touch her. This wasn't just things worked out in a certain way. I'm working it that way. Just a touch on it. It's so good. Abimelech responds, Lord. That's the word Adonai. That's the word that's going to get used again and again for this God of the Bible again and again throughout the Old Testament. Now, it was a generic word, but he seems to know this God that he's talking to. And so he says, I didn't know, I'll fix it. I, again, I, I wish we had time to develop this, but I, I think what's happening here is Genesis 4, verse 26, tells us that long before at that time, people began to call upon the name of the Lord. That there was just some sort of an understanding of who this God was, even though he wasn't the one God had chose. God chose Abraham. In both of these stories, Lot and his daughters and Abraham and Sarah, we see people, even God's people, willing to sin to get what they want. We see a belief in God, even the one true God. But for Lot, for Abimelech, their failure to live it out in such a way as to keep them from the corrective judgment of God. The fact that you're in church on a Sunday morning is great. If the rest of your life is not lived in faithful obedience to God and his word, you might be storing up judgment for yourself. We definitely don't see them passing it on to the next generation. This tragic story of Lot's two daughters from that moment on, their, their line is no longer referred to as the children of Lot. The heritage of Lot. It's the Moabites and the Ammonites. And they are outside of God's covenant people. When we're together next, we're going to see the preserving grace of God given to Abraham and Sarah. Beginning of chapter 21, it says the Lord visited Sarah just as he had said, and the Lord did to Sarah just as he had promised. Not because of any good that Abraham had or Sarah had. It's not based on their goodness or their merit. Man, we've seen that again and again as they keep falling short, but solely on the sovereign election of God. Just reminded in this moment of the New Testament admonition, make your calling and election sure. It is God who calls. It is God who saves. Oh, but friends, let us be diligent with every moment that we have to know him and make him known. Worship team, if you would come on up. I want to close by just asking a couple questions. Then we're going to come to the table of the Lord together. 
This one could not be more important. Have you fully believed? Have you, individual, not not the person sitting next to you, not the person, oh, I wish so-and-so was here to hear this. Have you, friend, fully believed the gospel unto salvation? Before you answer, that answer is predicated upon, is there evidence of that in your life? Is there evidence that God has given you a new heart and a new spirit? That God has given you the mind of Christ? Oh, if the answer is yes, but like Abraham, you find yourself failing again and again, repent and fall upon the mercy of God. Trust in the God who saves. But if the answer is no, if you look at yourself and you say, no, I honestly believe I'm a Christian, but there's no evidence of it in my life, then maybe back up from that and repent and trust in Christ. Turn from your sin. Throw yourself upon the grace of God. But for those of you who have believed, have you passed that on to your family? Are you being diligent to pass that on to your family? Or have we just assumed that because we believed right and we lived right, everything's going to work out all right in the end? Friends, the answer is not live better, try harder, do better. It's repent. But repent's just a, a churchy word. It's an old word that means to turn around and go the opposite direction. It doesn't mean to say I'm sorry. If you've got kids, you know saying you're sorry can be something you can force. Say you're sorry. Sorry. I think a lot of Christians, quote-unquote, have sat in a church where they heard some sermon about hell and the judgment yet to come and the pastor said say you're sorry and they came to the front and said sorry and we have false conversions not those whose hearts and lives and minds have been changed in obedience to Christ just a bunch of people who said they were sorry no turn from your sin and trust in Christ run to him find your strength and your hope in him by God's grace not because you've decided to do it. And if I, if I repent enough, if I try hard enough, well, then I will be saved. No, because God has been gracious in choosing you. Be faithful. Be diligent. In all that you do. 1 Corinthians 10, verse 31. So whether you eat or drink, whatever you do, do it all to the glory of God. Not seeking my own advantage but that of many that they may be saved. Oh, know your God and pass that knowledge on to the next generation. As we come to the table of the Lord, we're given a a living picture of that that Jesus gave us. On the night he was betrayed, 1 Corinthians 11 tells us, Jesus gathered at the Last Supper with his disciples Unlike the painting that looks like they were posing for a photograph, they weren't all sitting on one side of the table with the photographer on the other side. It was family, it was friends gathered around a table, sitting on the floor, leaning in to the table and towards each other. To his friends and family, he said, this is my body. 
It's broken for you. You're already following me. They were already his disciples. But he says, here's a living picture of what's really happening. It's my body broken for you that causes salvation. It's my blood that is shed for you that is the power to save a dead sinner and make him alive. This is real food and real drink. Eat this in remembrance of me. Drink this every time you're together in remembrance of me. And that's what we do. We come to the table saying, God, if it wasn't for your grace, I'm Lot and not Abraham. Apart from the grace of God, there go I. Many of you can look back at the train wreck that you've made of your life and say, I don't even know why I'm invited to this table. And that's because Christ has paid that sacrifice for you. He's the reason you're invited. So as we come, let us examine our hearts. If you're not a believer, man, don't come to the table. Don't come and go, oh yeah, Jesus is my Savior, but I don't really believe it. Actually stay right where you are and say, God, is this thing real? Are you real? Is heaven real? Is hell real? Is sin real? Now that's the one question you can't afford to not get right. God in his grace brings us reminders that this life is temporary and short and eternity is forever. Get it right. Ask that question of God, and God loves to answer that question. In fact, if he's been working and drawing in your life, he's been doing things that you haven't even been aware of the whole time. It's only when he brings you from death to life, which is how the New Testament describes becoming a Christian, that we finally see our eyes are open. We say, God, you've been at work this whole time. How did I miss it? Trust in him today. For those of you who are believers, come to the table and proclaim with your life and your actions, my trust is in Christ alone. May we live that out in such a way that we pass it on to our families. Let's stand together. Let's pray. And then as the worship team begins to lead us as we sing, acknowledging from Psalm 23 that the Lord is our shepherd. He's the one at the helm. He's the one guiding our path. Let's put our hope in him. Lord, we come knowing the secrets of our own hearts, maybe that nobody else in this room knows. We say, how on earth is it possible that a good, holy, righteous, just God would call me? For those of you who have been called in Christ, here's the answer, friends. Your sin has been fully punished in Jesus Christ upon the cross. And his perfection has been given to you. Lord, I pray you'd help us see that and believe it. Lord, I pray for those who are in this room who don't know you and don't believe in you. Would you confront us, O God, with the desperate shortness of this life, of our inability to save ourselves, our great need for a Savior, and would you do what a sermon can't do, what pressure and guilt and manipulation can't do? Would you open blinded eyes that they might see the glory of Christ? 
Heaven's just a byproduct of it. Christ, you are exalted king, and we owe all that we have to you. To throw ourselves down and worship gladly before your throne. And anything else that comes is just icing on the cake. Lord, let them see that glorious king, I pray. Let us come with faith and trust in the God who saves us. Thanks for joining our podcast. We pray that God would bless you and strengthen you through his word. If you'd like to find out more about EWC or give tithes and offerings in support of this ministry, visit our website at edenworshipcenter.co.